Fergie, the Duchess of York, turned down a guest appearance on the hit show Baywatch. Fergie is actually British, not German, which while not proving, certainly does nothing to disprove my time-tested theory, Germans love David Hasselhoff. Well, hello, friends. This is the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast, episode number 33, with your host, Sean. Uh, however, this week, well, it's still Sean. So yeah, hi, hi, I'm Sean, everybody. It's not somebody else pretending to be me. Um, how are you doing? I will pause to let you answer that question, just on the off chance that I've figured out how to make a pre-recorded podcast allow you and me to have a conversation somehow. Oh, really? Well, that's interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Oh, oh, thank you for asking. How am I doing? I guess I'm doing okay. Um, I got some positives. I'm see, I don't know if I should be surprised or if I shouldn't be surprised that I got positive feedback about my previous episode in which, well, I was just burnt out on doing the podcast. So instead I went off topic and talked about well, my job. Wow. How fascinating is that? But I got some, some nice feedback. So thank you. Uh, those of you who, uh, I'm not going to read all the feedback I got on that, uh, but I do appreciate the thoughts and words on that. I realize that I really need to cut down on saying what happens is what will happen is what would happen was what did happen was this, what happened was it. I got to cut back on that. I remember my English teacher, my senior year of high school, she would always say, don't be redundant and don't use words you don't need. The fact that. That's not something you want to put in there. What happens is, well, just see what happens. And interestingly, I mentioned how I teach test prep classes as a part-time job. Uh, I tell my students to do the same thing. I tell them the same freaking thing. Yet I make that mistake when I podcast. I tell them when you write your essays, don't write unnecessary words. Don't be redundant. Yet here I am doing it as I podcast. Oh, well, what am I, what am I going to do? Huh? And I mentioned that I didn't know what my status was at Midwest gaming classic. Well, about four or five days after the podcast came out, I got an email from Gary at Midwest gaming classic. I think his name's Gary Heil, I believe who I believe runs the Garcade in Brookfield, Wisconsin or near Brookfield, Wisconsin, brand new arcade just opened in the last year. But he co-runs uh, Midwest Gaming Classic with Dan Luce, and he said, hey, just want to let you know I got your paperwork. Now, here's the form you have to fill out for the electricity and all this. So go ahead and fill it out, pay the fee, and you know we'll get you all, we'll get you all squared away. So I was excited about that because it basically means, yeah, we absolutely have a space at Midwest Gaming Classic for <gasps> Pie Factory Podcast. But I'm also going to be representing this podcast as well. But hey, look for the Pie Factory Podcast space at Midwest Gaming Classic in downtown Milwaukee, assuming you're going. I believe it's the second biggest video game show in the United States. The first biggest is in Portland. And I have a fairly new coworker, actually. Uh, he's started where, where I'm working. He started a few months ago. And he's a old school video game nerd like I am. And he actually used to live in Portland. And he said, yeah, I've been to Midwest Gaming Classic and it's good, but Portland Retro Gaming Expo is better. <laughs> uh, I don't know if I'm going to be able to get out there anytime soon. Um, I might have mentioned before, my wife and I did go to Portland a few years ago in the summer. And we did a road trip from Portland down to San Francisco. And it was just awesome. But we spent a few days in Portland and we both loved it. And we can't wait to go there again. And I did mention Portland retro gaming expo to my wife. And she said, you know, that'll be an excuse to go to Portland. So she's open for, uh, uh, she's, she's at least entertaining the thought of possibly going there. Of course, it's uh, during the school year. So I don't know how we would be able to work that out. And she's a teacher. So, uh, oh, well, I'm not going to worry about that right now. I have Midwest gaming classic coming up. Oh, speaking of which one thing I'm really, really excited about, there is a podcast slash YouTube show. And I know I've mentioned this in a previous episode. It's called guys, games, and beer. And I believe they're based out of Racine, Wisconsin. And, uh, the title is about two thirds accurate. 
It's about games and it's about beer. The first thing they do actually in most episodes is they do what they call beer court in which they critique a beer. And it's usually some kind of microbrew. And it's basically like the people's court. And they'll say, well, charges of this beer being too hoppy or not hoppy enough or something. And they'll, they'll uh, determine whether or not uh, it's a uh, guilty or whatever, <laughs> but they take their beer seriously. And uh, they always go to Midwest gaming classic and they usually have an amazing setup. At least when it was in Brookfield, they had this huge, huge, huge room that had all kinds of vintage gaming consoles and computers. They had, Atari 2600, they had uh, an Intellivision, an Amiga, a uh, Vectrex, probably a Commodore 64. They but they had so much th- they had so many things out. And uh, they're they're really really nice guys too. They really are. And uh, the reason I say that uh, two thirds of the title of their show is accurate is because there are also women involved in their show too. So it's not just guys. But they posted on YouTube a preview of one of the things they're going to feature at Midwest Gaming Classic that they're working on. That's almost a hundred percent ready. They are going to have an arcade sized Vectrex in an arcade cabinet. They hacked a Vectrex with a 19 inch vector monitor and arcade style controller joystick and the four buttons, of course. And not only that, but they have overlays in there for the size of the monitor and you push a button to pick the overlay and it automatically pops up for you. So you don't have to pop it in, pop it out. It just kind of scrolls in there. It is so cool. I can't wait to see that thing in person, but I will post a link to the video in the show notes. Uh, yeah. You may have noticed ever since I got back in the Vectrex world, uh, I'm talking a lot about Vectrex. Uh, am I going to be doing a Vectrex podcast? No, no, I'm not. I just really love this Vectrex. And, uh, what, what else can I say? Uh, and I've gotten some requests to cover some homebrew hardware, which I will be doing soon. In fact, I'm planning for the next episode, episode 34, to talk about the sadly defunct Cuddle Cart 2. But the fact, well, then again, all the other game-by-game podcasts out there pretty much are covering nothing but defunct things. So might as well, right? So I'll talk about that. I'm going to do some uh, research in that little piece of hardware and see what I can come up with. But um, yeah, anyway, so I don't know what else to say other than here I am with another episode of the podcast. And I'm feeling pretty good, actually. I think probably the reason I'm feeling good is I'm home. It's the weekend. There's a bottle of Bailey's Irish cream in the fridge. And looking forward to some relaxation. It's... uh, Good Friday when I'm recording this, uh, and Lisa and I were getting together with my parents on Saturday, the day before Easter. They're going to come up to the city. We're going to have a nice, uh, Saturday brunch. Uh, we, my, my wife had requested that we do our Easter thing on Saturday this year, just so she doesn't have to rush around on Sunday, the day before she has to go back to school. She was just on spring break and had an amazing time in New York city. I stayed behind and worked and took care of the dog, <laughs> which is okay because I'm, I, I know I might've mentioned this before and I know I'm going to anger some people, but I don't like New York city. I'm so sorry, people. I just don't, I really don't. And uh, Lisa had been talking about doing certain things in New York that she's really been wanting to do. And that I'm not necessarily interested in. Like there are some stores she wanted to go to. Um, she, there's a ballet choreographed by Twyla Tharp called Deuce Coop. And she wanted to see that. And Deuce Coop is, uh, if you've ever heard the song, little Deuce Coop. Yeah, it has to do with that. It is a ballet choreographed to beach boys songs. And Twyla Tharp put it together back in 1972 or 1973. And over the years, there were four different versions of it. And the one that was, uh, at least four different versions. And the one that Lisa saw in New York was, Deuce Coop 4, which I believe is from 1992. And uh, Twyla Tharp's original idea was to do a ballet using songs from the Beatles' self-titled album, also known as the White Album. But she found that she was able to actually get some more inspiring material from various songs in the Beach Boys catalog. What's interesting is a lot of the songs she used weren't 
big hits. It was uh, a lot of album tracks and things like for almost a hundred percent of the music is the actual recordings. It's not uh, covers, but the song that opens and closes the show is a song called cuddle up, which was not a big hit at all. I I think it was on a single in 1972, but it's a, gorgeous song it's a dennis wilson song but it it uses just kind of a lot of semi-obscure songs too and that was pretty pretty interesting according to what lisa told me but she said you're not into ballet you wouldn't have liked it (laughs) there's some other things she did that i i particularly wasn't really interested in but uh uh, as for me, I went to Underground Retrocade while she was away. The only thing is I think I didn't sleep well the night before because I felt kind of stoned when I went there and I just wasn't I just wasn't feeling it. I sucked at everything I played. I didn't do so well at Centipede. I didn't do so well. Well, I played Mario Brothers and I beat my previous high score, but it wasn't really high. It was only like 51,000 that I scored, I think. And, um, yeah, I I just didn't have a good day. So I just called it quits and said, yeah, I'm just going to go back home. And I went home, took a nap with the dog, had some dinner and, uh, had a nice sleep the next day and went to a new, uh, beer cade that a friend of mine works at. Uh, he does a lot of, he he's, uh, my friend, George Spanos does a lot of arcade game repair work and he fixes things up and he wanted me to check out his, the beer cade that the people that he works for just opened. So I did, and it's called Izzy's arcade bar and it's in Niles, Illinois, not terribly far from where I live. It's just uh, maybe about five, six miles away. They have probably, I don't know. I'm going to guesstimate. They have about, I might be overestimating it, but I think it's about 70 arcade video games and a few of the brand new stern pinball machines like ghostbusters and i gotta say george did a good job with those uh, video games because they look really really sharp they have a lot of the old stuff a lot of new stuff and they all looked pretty freaking sharp sharpest i've ever seen those things look even back in the 80s when they were brand new they didn't look as good but i was very impressed and the games are on free play i played a, a round of centipede and got 120,000. Not my personal best. My personal best is about 210,000, I think. But usually I have to play several games of Centipede before I get a six-digit score. But no, I only played one and I got 120,000. So I was like, ooh, not too bad. And I played a round of Donkey Kong. And that was pretty much it because I didn't want to be gone too long. I didn't want to leave the dog alone. And so I played a couple of games, did a little walkthrough video, and then just went back home, took care of the dog, and... Watched a lot of Simpsons reruns, so that was my bachelor weekend, I guess. And then I did some preparation for this episode. And uh, for this episode, we are talking about one of the many Clark Otto homebrew games done in 7800 Basic. Clark Otto, of course, is Frank O. Dragon on the Atari Age forums. And today's episode, this episode, is going to be about... Panda Racer, and Rider of the Night. So, let's take a look at Panda Racer. Rider of the Night started life as a racing demo called Panda Racer. Clark posted the first version of it on Atari Age on August 2nd, 2015, although, judging from the title of the thread, which was my, ick, racing demo, That's exactly what it was titled, by the way. But judging by that title, he wasn't really particularly proud of it. He wanted to do a racing game similar to Fatal Run, but with a panda as the main character to uh, give it a more humorous vibe. And for information on Fatal Run, I direct you to episode 22 of the Atari 7800 Game by Game podcast. Phil the No Swear Gamer has just recently reposted that episode to his podcast's feed, but I'll put a direct link to the episode in my show notes. But getting back to Panda Racer, at this point, back on the 2nd of August, Clark admittedly was very new to 7800 Basic, and he implied that it showed in his code, which he described as sloppy. As Clark described the game, you start out driving a car around a map of a city, 
And when you hit a marker, which looks like a car, you go into a racing portion of the game. And you need to keep an eye on your fuel gauge in the lower right corner. And I just noticed that I misspelled gauge in my episode notes. G-A-G-E. Uh-uh, no. But you guys can't tell because you don't see the notes that I took. But having said that, if the fuel gauge is green, you're okay. Red, eh, not so much. Blue, however, means simply that you're at roughly half a tank. In the demo that Clark posted, the movement of the enemy cars and cops was kind of odd, looking like they were just dropping from the sky. And this was due to the math calculations that the code was doing to figure out the artificial intelligence moves and such. Clark did explicitly state that uh, he had some work to do in this regard. Moving forward to the 11th of August that year, there was a new updated binary posted, which now had night scenes. Now, from what I can tell from playing the game, whether you race at night or during the day depends on the color car you make contact with on the map screen. If you make contact with a green car, you race during the day, but if you make contact with a blue car, the race happens in a night scene. A couple of weeks later, the 27th of August, there was another new updated ROM posted. New updated as opposed to old updated? Huh. But regardless, there was a new feature. There were now red and green orbs falling from the sky, similar to road blasters if I'm not mistaken. If you collect a green orb, you get fuel added to your tank, but if you collect a red orb, well, that depletes your fuel. If a red orb causes your tank to go completely empty, your game ends. And there was now an animal control van added to the city map. Uh, remember, your character is a panda. And if your car comes into contact with the animal control van, you're brought into a beat-em-up screen in which you're in a fight with the driver of the van. You hit the fire button on your joystick to punch the animal control officer, and you have to repeatedly punch him and force him all the way to the right side of the screen. But if he forces you all the way to the left side, the game's over. Clark did disclaim that there were still a lot of bugs that he had to work out. September 11th, there was another update posted, and this time there were now five tracks and a beat-em-up stage involving a zookeeper. Uh, I don't know if I actually saw that stage. It might Maybe he got his words mixed up and meant animal control officer. I'm not really sure, but I couldn't see that unless I was missing something. I did see uh, just a random guy kind of crossing the screen that might have been the zookeeper, but I never got involved with the zookeeper, so I don't know. But anyway, the game still had a lot of bugs in it, as Clark admitted. A week later, September 18th, uh, that was 2015, that was my 17th wedding, no, 16th wedding anniversary, sorry about that, um, good thing my wife doesn't listen to podcasts, <laughs> but anyway, Clark posted another updated ROM that brings an additional city map by using code from another one of Clark's games, and uh, that game was a Zelda-style game called Draker Quest. And Draker Quest, of course, will be featured in a future episode of this podcast. Flash forward another week to the 25th of September, there was, uh, you guessed it, another updated ROM with yet another updated city map and more tracks, and still a lot of bugs that had to be squashed. Now, there wasn't anything new publicly shared until December 6th, when Clark posted another ROM and uh, still with a lot of bugs in it. December 23rd, Clark had updated the playable ROM one more time. There were trees on the road in the racing segments, but the problem is they were causing some problems. Some of the trees and other objects that were on the side of the road caused the game to crash from time to time. So Clark's solution, take them out. But with this new version of the game, other cars would try to run you off the road. And the game now had two cities and ten tracks. And uh, really, that's the last we heard of Panda Racer. While he was working on Panda Racer, it occurred to Clark that he could change the graphics and turn it into a game based on the TV show Knight Rider. Especially because someone previously announced such a homebrew for the 2600. And for those of you unfamiliar with that story, here's, well, as brief a synopsis as I can give as to how that came about. 
In May of 2003, a 29-year-old apparently named James and using the handle Hard Work posted a message on Atari Age saying that he was a newbie programmer and in fact he'd never programmed anything in his life. Well, Hard Work decided he was going to work on a Knight Rider game for the 2600 and it would fit on a 4K or maybe 8K cartridge. This Knight Rider homebrew would use the touchpad from Star Raiders with an overlay that would resemble Kit's instrument pad. And in case you don't know anything about Knight Rider, Kit is the black car from the TV show. There would also be a custom joypad controller that would resemble Kit's steering yoke. And said joystick controller would consist of a holder for the touchpad in the middle of the steering yoke. Uh, you would attach the touchpad with Velcro. The controller would have a four-way D-pad on the left handle and a fire button on the right handle. The projected price of the game, complete with the special controller and touchpad overlay, would fall between $50 and $70. Uh, and if he couldn't get the licensing, the game would be released under a different name, but for a lower price. But anyway... This hard work person had estimated that there would be between 3,000 and 10,000 Knight Rider fans who own an Atari 2600 who would be interested in this game. So how exactly did he calculate that three to 10,000 figure? Well, here's his logic. Around 1984, after the North American video game crash, there were at least 10 million Atari 2600s in American homes, with most players being boys between the ages of 5 and 15. And half of said boys watched Knight Rider every week, and many of those boys grew to be men who considered Knight Rider to be the best TV show from the 80s. And uh, in his exact words, and I quote, without boring everyone with math... <laughs> Hard work figured that there are at least 5,000 current diehard 2600 users who are still Knight Rider fans. Furthermore, he said, I cannot be alone here when I say that I would whip out my debit card in a flash to own a quality Knight Rider 2600 title in a second, one that includes a sexy joypad touchpad combo for under $100. Again, um, hard work's words, not mine. Now, for comparison's sake, keeping in mind those numbers that Hard Work projected, another 2600 homebrew that actually was released and had a custom controller was brought into question, Thomas Yench's Thrust Plus. Atari Age user Moicon asked Thomas how many units that that game had sold, considering it didn't require extra money for a license. In the three years since it had been released at the time, Thomas estimated that about... 200 copies have been sold. Hardwork said, well, you know what, I totally understand that, and I'll probably adjust my business model based on learning about how this game only sold 200 copies, and that it's a pretty popular homebrew. And he said that his projections were simply a best-case scenario. But getting back to Knight Rider for the 2600, the initial designs were allegedly finished, so the coding would be next. The goal was to have the finished product ready, for the 2006 Classic Gaming Expo, Thomas Yench pointed out that if hard work was indeed the 2600 programming newbie that he said he was, he likely wouldn't be able to finish the game in time for CGE, however, even though it was still three years away. But amid doubts and suspicions, hard work claimed that Knight Rider 2600 was not a joke, but a true labor of love. Um, however, there weren't any pictures or other evidence posted showing the work in progress, but he did say to check the July um, 2003, I assume, that edition of the Electronic Gaming Monthly magazine for, and I quote, screenshots of the joypad and overlay. Um, how you get a screenshot of a piece of hardware is beyond me, but hey, that's just semantics. When told that he should actually program the game first and then come up with a business model, Hard Work said he had to have a business model prepared so that he could bring it to the Knight Rider license holders. He estimated that he could sell the cartridge itself, well, plus the touchpad overlay, for between $20 and $25, and the custom controller could sell by itself for the same price. He'd also be selling the Star Raiders touchpad controller by itself. His plan was to uh, basically acquire some old touchpad controllers, test them out, and clean them thoroughly. As for the game itself, the graphics would be very basic, with a focus on the quality of the gameplay rather than the visuals. 
He said the audio would be, again, I quote, sparse but effective, and he indicated that the few sounds that would be in the game would be easy enough to simulate the sound effects from the TV show. So what would the gameplay be like? The touchpad would afford you these commands, turbo booster, laser, hookshot, scanner, kit icon, super pursuit mode, emergency brake system, auto cruise, and satellite command or sat, um, commander communication. I'm not really sure. It's just S A T T period C O M M period. The gameplay would include stunt driving, stealth tactics, um, quote unquote fisticuffs. I wonder if, uh, hard work is British. <laughs> And uh, it would also include resource management and each of those various gameplay, um, I don't know, tactics would involve a countdown clock. There were five domains in the planning. There was driving mode, which is overhead stunt driving, a scanner or map screen. Um, Hard work described this as simple representations of the city. His words, not mine. There would be a part inside the hideout, which uh, hard work compared to Keystone Capers. And there would be one outside the hideout, described as outdoor fisticuffs with an escaped goon. Hard work explained that the goal of each episode, as he called it, would be to find and capture the boss, which would require locating hideouts and fighting the goons. Each goon you capture and uh, therefore interrogate would give you a clue as to the boss's location. The game would end when either you capture the boss Kit is defeated, you get only one life, or the mission time expires in any episode. After this description and other details were posted, many Atari Age users expressed their doubt as to the possibility of this kind of a game fitting on just a 4KB or even 8KB cartridge. Some users went so far as to accuse hard work of being a very dedicated troll. The more details hard work posted, the less believable people were finding the concept. Suddenly, instead of just hard work, there is now a mention of an entire team, tentatively named Savage, working on the game. And now, suddenly, there was talk of abandoning the 2600 version in favor of versions for the Jaguar, 5200, and Atari 8-bit computers. Or maybe they were still going to carry on with the 2600 version. It was getting kind of fuzzy at this point. The story seemed to keep changing. People were drawing parallels between Knight Rider 2600 and a Sword Quest Airworld hoax that happened uh, fairly recently before that. All of this stuff happened in just a couple of weeks in May 2003. Well, on May 28th, Hardwork posted an update with some more streamlined gameplay proposals. The game would have three episodes with three goons to interrogate per episode. The original Keystone Capers concept had been defenestrated at this point, now being replaced with gameplay more akin to that of Karateka or Kung Fu with uh, elements of Metal Gear for good measure. And now the plan was that the cartridge would be 32 kilobytes. Uh, interesting, all that stuff they were talking about putting on 4 or 8K and now there's less of it and they were scaling back a little, but they were planning on 32K. Interesting how that kind of uh, uh, came about. And uh, in the event that the Savage team could not secure the rights to the name Knight Rider, there were three possible alternative names with the possibility of taking suggestions from other people as well. The three possible alternative names that they were toying around with were Knight Ride, N-I-G-H-T, Ride, that is, Lone Crusader, and Shadowy Flight. Eventually, Hard Work posted mock-up pictures of potential screens and what the controllers would look like. He said that the title screen was almost done when he was asked for a screen capture of the title screen. He said, no problem, I'll be posting it soon. And uh, that was the last that hard work had posted until August 19th, while almost three months later. He said that a lot had changed with the game, including the name, with details coming soon. So keeping all that in mind, time passed. November comes along, people are asking about the progress, no response. Then January, 2004 now, still nothing. 2005 happened, nothing. As with other Franco Dragon games based on Atari Age discussions, the Knight Rider thread devolved into nothing but people making fun of this non-existent game, and of course, poking fun at hard work's habits, as it were. 
For example, some Atari Age users would discuss how they had ideas for games based on other 80s TV shows, such as Hardcastle and McCormick, The McLaughlin Group, Silver Spoons, and One Day at a Time. Uh, I'm sure there were others that uh, I'm forgetting to mention, but you get the point. Of course, 2006 came and went with no further details, and uh, interestingly, Classic Gaming Expo was canceled that year. Uh, maybe it was because of Knight Rider 2600 being non-existent that they canceled the show. They were so looking forward to seeing that, possibly. I don't know. I don't know. But whatever the case, it has since become tradition to revive that thread every year at the beginning of the year. It's one of the long-standing jokes on Atari Age. Every year, somebody has to bump that thread and say, Hey, how's the progress? What say ye, all ye men? Are you ready for some high action for the Atari 2600? The Knight Rider 2600 is for you! Knight Rider 2600 extracts all the enjoyable bits from the hit TV show and drops them on your Atari system! Using the included custom KR2600 joypad and the Atari touchpad with kit overlay, you play as Michael Knight as he drives the Knight Industries 2000 through three levels of blocky action. Stunt driving, investigating, stealth tactics, puzzle pieces, resource management, fisticuffs, and text all balanced to a countdown clock. Fight goons into submission, issue arrest warrants, and capture the boss. All this action in a 4 to 8K cartridge. Knight Rider 2600 coming your way in 2006. Or 7. Or 8. Would you believe Knight Rider 2600 from Team Savage Hardwork and the Kinko's Guy. Game may be released under a slightly different title. But you know what? Let's bring it back to Rider of the Night for the Atari 7800. That's the name that Clark gave his new game so that he'd avoid getting a cease and desist letter from Universal. Whereas Knight and Knight Rider is spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, Knight and Rider of the Night is spelled N-I-G-H-T. And while the main character in Knight Rider is named Michael Knight, also K-N-I-G-H-T, the character you control in Rider of the Night is named Mike Knight, N-I-G-H-T. Now, I'm not going to get into the history of Knight Rider here because you know what? Hard work said that it seems that uh, so many Atari 2600 gamers, and I'm assuming most, if not all of you listening are, so many 2600 gamers think that Knight Rider was the greatest TV show of the 80s, so you know what, I'm not going to waste your time by talking about the story of Knight Rider, how that show originated, instead I'm just going to focus on Rider of the Night. Allow me to read Franco Dragon's description of his game. You are Mike Knight in a city held hostage by crime and corruption. Nobody can escape areas of the city unless they manage to race on dangerous roads with hazards such as red orbs that will empty your gas tank and bombs thrown from planes. Only then, secret tunnels to other parts of the city will be unveiled if you manage to obtain the checkered flags. There is a mastermind behind all the crime. Defeat him and the city will return to its peaceful state. So, what about this fallen city? Well, it has four parts, for one thing, each of which has a parked car on the map of the city. When you drive your car over and touch that parked car on the map, you'll find yourself in a race. Well, eh, I, I don't know. I wouldn't call it so much as a race as I'd call it a chase, really. All you're doing is avoiding the other cars. They're trying to run you off the road. And avoid the red orbs falling from the sky as they're going to deplete your fuel. Collect green orbs to refuel, and of course, grab the checkered flags that fall from the sky. When you're navigating through the map of the city, you might happen across a semi-truck. Inside those semis are the crime boss's goons. If your car makes contact with one of those semis, you'll end up in a fist fight with one of those goons. I guess it's the fisticuffs that Hard Work was talking about. You'd need to repeatedly punch the goon and force him all the way to the right side of the screen. However, if he overpowers you and forces you all the way to the left, the game's over. What's a bit unusual about Rider of the Night, and uh, Panda Racer really, is that there's no score. You just have to get rid of all the crime and that's it. Now, Clark did program some voice synthesis into the game via Atari Vox, but he had no way of testing it. He didn't have an actual Atari Vox. He programmed the spoken message Play Rider of the Night into the intro screen, 
There were various sentences programmed during the fight scene. Clark specified, you will die and welcome to your doom, but he implied that there were other messages that were spoken. And in later levels, where a plane crosses the sky and tries to drop bombs on you, there are voice-synthesized warnings, such as, look out, Mike, it's a bomb. Unfortunately, despite the line of code that he wrote that enables the Atari Vox and the speech he coded, Gambler172 found that the Atari Vox just wasn't working with the ROM that Clark had posted on February 14th, 2016. The only sound that actually came from his Atari Vox was a short tune at the end of the game. Atari Age user Rev Ang, who is also a homebrew developer, as you might remember from earlier episodes, he chimed in and said, well, you really need to tweak the data that you send to the Atari Vox if you want it to really sound good. And you can't really reliably program the thing without an actual Atari Vox. Which, uh, which is fair, you don't want to program blindly. But moving on, two days later, February 16th, that's a hard word to say, February. A lot of people say February. Uh, there's an R in there, folks, that you're missing, February. But that's neither here nor there. What is here is the new playable ROM of Rider of the Night that Clark posted. And for one thing, it fixed a bug that might have caused a game over screen to come up when the game boots. And Clark had hoped that the Atari Vox code would now work, but unfortunately it didn't. Rev Eng chipped in once again and gave some more coding advice, so Clark posted another version of the playable ROM on the 21st of February, this time with some additional tweaks to fix some weird graphical glitches that were showing up with the tunnels. This time, Gambler172 was able to hear voice synthesis, although it was always very short. So, Clark made some more tweaks and posted yet another new version of the ROM the next day, but apparently that only made the voice synthesis even worse. So, there was yet another version posted on the 28th of February, but uh, it still didn't fix the Atari Vox problems, so he took out some of the voice code and posted yet another new version of the ROM the next day, which uh, I guess would have been 20, the 29th of February, right? Yeah. But the voice synthesis that was still intact wasn't working correctly. Clark thought that perhaps the music code was interfering, so he made some tweaks that would reset the Atari Vox when the music plays, and the new version was posted on March 6th. March 12th happened, and Clark posted yet another new version of the game, and this time you would see the letter M on a city map replacing a parked car when that corresponding race had already been completed. And also, there were some code tweaks to fix some uh, display glitches within that city map. There were still graphical glitches in the race scenes, including the road temporarily disappearing. However, he didn't make any attempts to fix the voice synthesis, focusing instead on the actual gameplay. However, Gambler172 did notice that he could hear the phrase, You will die, during a fight scene. On March 14th, Clark did make a bit of a change to where the Atari Vox code was placed, and he posted a new version of the game. The voice synthesis in the fight scene was better, but still not perfect. So over the next month, he posted a few new versions of the ROM that fixed various glitches, but the updates ended on April 4th, at least for a little while. Flash ahead, wow, that's uh, seven months, yeah. November 9th, Clark posted a new version of the game that had many bug fixes, and he removed the voice synthesis. By request, he did make a version of the game with the original Knight Rider title intact for somebody, but understandably, he refused to distribute it out of fears from hearing from Universal's lawyers. The next day, he posted artwork for the cartridge, except maybe for a minor graphical fix in January 2017, there was no further work done, at least publicly, on Rider of the Night. And as far as I know, Clark never produced a cartridge of the game. Um, uh, Clark, if you're hearing me now, uh, let me know if that's uh, uh, right. Uh, well, maybe I'll see you at Midwest Gaming Classic again, but and you can tell me then. Anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there, but I should talk about the game myself and my opinions of it. Um, I'm going to admit, I first played the game without actually reading the description, and when I did, I was terribly disappointed. I thought things were just pointless and wonky and just... Uh, but 
it turns out that uh, you really do need to read the description. Um, what I told you about should be sufficient enough for you to understand how to play the game and that it's really a lot better than it looks. It really is. There's a lot of creativity in this game. There's um, a lot of ambition, and I mean that in an absolute good way. Graphically, it's not the most pleasant thing to look at, I admit. Uh, and just like with pretty much all of Clark's other games that I've talked about so far, I really wish there'd be more sound effects. It's The sound effects are very, very quick and basic. Uh, the version that I played didn't have any voice synthesis, and it was like the latest version where he took it all out, so I haven't really heard the voice synthesis samples at all. Uh, I had to play this game in MAME, with uh, the Mac, I used just the standard version of MAME to play this because it's really hard to emulate this game because it's 512 kilobytes and not many emulators support that and you can't run that on a Mateos cart. So I had to play it through an emulator and uh, I, I really don't have a heck of a lot to say more. Just remember the description of the game, what you're supposed to do, and you'll have a much better time than if you just played it blindly. But that's enough about my thoughts for now. Let's hear about what other people have to say about Rider of the Night. And Panda Racer, for that matter. Sunday, kits and flames. Show off. But he's customized to crack a gang of classic car groups. You ain't seen nothing yet. Night Rider, Sunday. I got some feedback on Atari Age. For one, I heard from Drac is Back who says about Rider of the Night, I've only played a little. Very innovative ideas come out of that developer. I really think his games would go to the next level if he collaborated with an artist who specialized in squeezing the best look out of Maria. It would make the games so much more engaging. They have considerable promise as it is. Good, good point, Drac is back. Thank you for your feedback on that. And that's something that always sticks out in my mind. Uh... The thing about the Franco Dragon games is the uh, there are a couple of things. There's the graphic design in those, which they, uh, I hate to say it, but his games don't really look much like Atari 7800 games in terms of what the 7800 can do graphic-wise. And I find that surprising because Franco Dragon is a really good artist. He really is. If you've ever seen any uh, of his uh, drawings and and other works. He's, he's really good at that. I guess maybe going from sketch paper or maybe even a graphics program, translating that over to 7,800 isn't necessarily the easiest thing in the world. So yeah, he could use a little bit of help with that. And I think he would have some really amazing things going on for him there. And let's see, I heard from gambler 172 and quite simply, he just says Panda racer and riders of the night are good games. <laughs> That's it. I, I just love how I can kind of predict what kind of messages I'm going to get from different people. If it's Gambler 172, it's just going to be one sentence summary. And really, is there anything else that needs to be said? I mean, that's all I can say. So I'm I'm gl I'm always glad to hear. Well, I'm glad to hear from everybody, but I'm always glad to hear from Gambler 172. And if I hear from Eugenio, I know it's going to be well, really, pretty much a script that I could have worked off myself. So, oh boy. This is uh, this is why I love doing this podcast. Well, one reason I love doing this podcast, I love the feedback that I get from people. It's really amazing. But I also heard from Trek MD Eugenio who says, hello, Sean. I hope all is well. I really enjoyed listening to the last episode, Sean's first burnout, where you talked about how you got your job and explained some things related to web development. I found that to be quite interesting. I have to say that life does take some funny turns, doesn't it? You really liked what you were offered at one place, but ended up working at Company B, and there you still are today. Not what you were expecting when you first accepted the job. It does seem like a nice place to work at. Uh, I'm going to stop right here for a moment. Uh, yeah, it, it actually is. I mean, they, they do treat us well. They give us... Well, I, I talked all about that in the previous episode. And uh, one, thing, oh, one thing I forgot to mention, and one of the reasons that I brought up, I, I mentioned that... We use versioning system. In fact, most places where you go where there are teams working on any kind of developing, you use a versioning system like maybe, uh, what is it called, CVS, I think. And there is Git, which is the one that we use where I work. 
The thing about a versioning system, I've only used Git in my life. I've never used any other ones. But the thing about Git is not only can you go back and forth between different versions, but it also tells you who made what changes to the code and when. There's a feature in Git called Blame that'll actually tell you all that. And I remember, and the thing is, Git is, just like anything else, Git is not 100% perfect. It is a lot better than it was, say, five years ago when I first started. They've made some nice changes and upgrades to it. But I remember one time when, when there was this piece of code that stopped working, and one of my coworkers came to me and said, hey, it looks like you broke the code over here. Can you help fix it? And I said, what happened? They said, what what was going wrong with the, with the site and all that? I was like, yeah, the thing is, I've never touched that part of the site is in my life. And this person said, well, I used Git Blame, and it shows that you changed the code here. And so she showed me the record in Git with the blame information on it, and sure enough, there was my name. Um, except that the date of the code change was from a good two years before I started working at that company. So I pointed that out and I was like, well, there, there's Git for you. When did I start here? Oh yeah, just a few months ago. What's the date here? Oh yeah, two years ago. So yeah, seriously, I have no idea what this part of the code does. I've never touched it. I had no reason to touch it. So so you got to deal with that kind of stuff too from now. It hasn't happened in a long time. Uh, Git has been updated many times since, but uh, no, seriously, it is a good company to work for. And I'm, I'm glad I'm there and I plan to stay there as long as they want me unless something really good falls into my lap. Uh, part of the reason I plan to stay there, admittedly, is uh, the vacation time that I built up. I don't want to have to start all over with that. <laughs> but moving on, Eugenio, I'm sorry. Uh, Eugenio says, I was intrigued by the stuff you explained about how passwords are stored. It does sound like it would be extremely difficult to break those saved passwords, given all the gibberish they're transformed into. As for your not writing video games, I can see why. Web development and game development are two different things. They have similarities, but they're different specialties, so to speak. Oh, yeah, yeah. So how about the games for today's podcast? Rider of the Night and Panda Racer. Sadly, while I'm aware of the games, I've not been able to play them. I don't have MAME installed on my computer. Maybe it's time I do so. And the games won't run on the Pro System emulator. I've not tried using real hardware because I don't know if these games will run on the CC2, Cuddle Cart 2. I need to try them. I know there's a new 7800 emulator that is based on MAME, though. Maybe I'll give that a try. Hopefully, I will have this figured out by the next episode, and I can provide you with some feedback on the games. Going to the Final Frontier Gaming, Eugenio. <laughs> Thanks, Eugenio. Thanks. I do appreciate you uh, at least trying. Uh, thank you for your... Uh, uh, feedback that ended up being about more how you couldn't get the games running than uh, you were playing the games, which is fine. In fact, this might be a little bit helpful for everybody. Uh, that is a big problem with these particular games. It's not because of the programming or anything. It's simply because of the, the size. They're 512K. It's 512K. And just for comparison's sake, most of these emulators and uh, possibly even your cuddle cart Definitely the Mateos cart can't handle it. That's all there is to it. In fact, I do believe the game is supposed to be just 256K, but there are some emulators out there that have compatibility issues with 256K ROMs, so Clark kind of semi-artificially inflated it to 512K so it would play. But MAME should work. That's how I played the games, at least. To use MAME... I, I never use a, a GUI for MAME or anything. I just use the command line version where you actually type it out on a DOS prompt or whatever you have. Once you install MAME and you want to start using it, you're going to have a separate directory inside the MAME directory that has your ROMs, and that's where, obviously, your playable ROMs are going to go. And I do believe MAME supports both like both versions of 7800 ROMs, the ones that end in .bin and the ones that end in .a78. I think both will work off the top of my head, but... Here's what you do. You go into the MAME directory with whatever command shell you use, whether it be what MS-DOS is now, or if you have a Mac or Linux, you open up a terminal, and you go into your MAME directory. You type the MAME command, which, uh, depending on which version of MAME you have, it'll either be MAME64 or MAME. On a Mac or Linux, you have to type dot slash 
MAME64, I think. And then you hit the space bar, and then you type A7800, then you hit the space bar again, and you type hyphen cart, or dash if you prefer, but it's really a hyphen, <laughs> hyphen cart, and then space, and then the name of the ROM, and then it should fire up. So give that a shot, see how it works. But yeah, I think Pro System isn't going to like it, Retro Arch isn't going to like it, but MAME should be fine. MAME should be fine. So that does it for this episode's feedback, and thanks to all who contributed. And with that, we bring episode number 33 to a close. Thank you all for listening, and thank you to the following people who have sponsored this podcast over Patreon. And that would be Ed Ladin Controllers, Kyle Etter, Jimmy G, Great Defender, Richard Grounds, and thanks to Richard Grounds for finding a Vectrex overlay in the wild for me for the lowest price I've seen so far. Uh, so thank you so much for your help with that. Thank you to James Shackle and PJ Steele and Richard Valdez. You guys are all amazing. Thank you for your monetary support for this podcast and the payout for April for Patreon.com, as I mentioned before, has gone to the Moe Dworkin Cantor Scholarship. And by the way, my wife was very thankful for that. Uh, she was so happy that uh, I was going to do that for this podcast. So, and uh, she extends her thanks to all of you as well. But if you wish to support this podcast financially, go to patreon.com slash homebrew78. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Patron with an E thrown in for good measure. If you wish to reach out to me, that's homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And Fab4IT is spelled F-A-B. And then the uh, number four, and then IT.com. To go to the show notes that I always talk about, you open up your web browser and go to homebrew78.fab4it.com. Oh, by the way, if you listened to the previous episode, you know now that I am a website developer for a living. The show notes site, though, homebrew78.fab4it.com, even though I own that site, that's not actually my design. So if you don't like how it looks, don't blame me. I didn't design it. I just use a plugin that my hosting provider uses just to keep things simple for me. But anyway, you can uh, look at the show notes for this and all other episodes. And you can download all the episodes there as well. My Twitter handle is homebrew78. My YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And if you're going to Midwest Gaming Classic, uh, you can come check out uh, my stuff over at the Pie Factory podcast table. If there's anything in particular you want to see in terms of uh, 7,800 homebrews, just let me know. If it's something that I don't have, I can load it up onto my Mateos cart, uh, except for um, Panda Racer and Rider of the Night, because the Mateos cart can only handle up to 144 kilobytes, but... Uh, Panda Racer and Rider of the Night are 512, so they're pretty honking huge. But come on to the Pie Factory podcast table, say hi, you want to chat, we can chat, whatever. I'd love to meet people. Uh, and um, in the meantime, I asked for your support, but I'm asking even more that you give support to those hardworking homebrew developers who keep the 7800 alive. They deserve it. Thank you, everybody, for listening, and uh, hope to see some of you at Midwest Gaming Classic and uh, I'll talk to you again when it's time for episode 34 so long so long